If you have your Bibles, we will be returning once more to the book of Revelation. We'll be specifically looking at the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. Where we left off last time, uh, we had the seals that were broken and bringing with them judgments upon the world. And at the very end, uh, starting off in chapter 8, the prayers of the saints go to the Lord. And the Lord sends forth these judgments, these prayers of the saints, that the name of God would be vindicated in a world that stands in stark contrast against him. And that is where we pick up now, as we move into these seven trumpets. For the sake of time, uh, I will simply read uh, the interlude between the seven trumpets, chapters 10 and 11. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the cord outside the temple." Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain might fall during the days of their prophesying. 
And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and there the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty, all-powerful, all-sufficient God, your word is both the breath of life and a sharp sword and a consuming fire. And so, Lord, we pray this day that as you have spoken, your word will not return void to you. Lord, we pray this day that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The great reformer, Martin Luther famously wrote a paraphrase to Psalm 46 that uh, is regularly sung in churches even today. A mighty fortress is our God. 
And there are two verses in there particularly that highlight the essence of what this passage is in fact about, verses 3 and 4. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed for his truth to triumph through us. And then he'll go on to say in the end of the fourth verse, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. What the Lord Jesus wants us to see in this passage today is that. That though this world stands in opposition against our God, and though we are fickle and jars of clay and are prone to fall and be broken, the Lord in his might and in his sovereignty has said, this is the manner in which my kingdom will go forward. It'll be through the preached word. This is the manner in which the kingdom will go. It will go by the making of martyrs who go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. But what Jesus is calling us to see here today is that, and to ask us this question, do you believe that? Do we, in fact, trust God that he would vindicate his name? that he would vindicate the saints? Do we trust God that, in fact, his word is enough to bring the world to repentance? Do we trust God that he will, in fact, hold his church fast in a world that wants it to go away? And so with that, we begin first looking at the seven trumpets. When we turn uh, in Revelation chapter 8, starting with verse 6, on through chapter 9, we see the first six of these various trumpets. And uh, we don't have quite as much time as we need to read all of this, but uh, we have the first section of four trumpets going together. And there's a, a pattern here. Uh, the first trumpet is blown, and there is fire and blood that is cast upon the earth. The second trumpet is blown, and there is a great mountain that is cast into the sea. The third trumpet is blown, and uh, the waters and rivers are uh, polluted. A blazing torch falls into them. And then fourth and finally, uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars are struck from the sky. We, we see that the Lord is bringing judgment and, and bringing forth the vindication of his name and of his saints through bringing these natural disasters. We see this type thing going on throughout the Old Testament, what is often referred to as the, this, this kind of pattern that occurs. We have creation, decreation in judgment, anticipating recreation. So with Noah, uh, the Lord creates um, mankind begins uh, to go further and further into rebellion. The flood occurs. That's decreation. But with that, there's always this anticipation, this longing for recreation. 
the Lord will not forsake what he has made and made good and promised to restore. But also there, there's this reality that the intention with these judgments, with these trumpets, is to bring a rebellious world into repentance. They're actually very, very similar to the plagues in Egypt. And if you go back and, and you reread uh, the plagues that are occurring in the book of Exodus, what the Lord is in fact doing there is dismantling the idols of the Egyptians. And in this case in particular where we see these judgments, what's the Lord doing? He's really dismantling the idols of the world's heart, namely that we think we're God. That the world is in our hands. That we make the sun rise and the stars in the skies are ours. There's something about these disasters soberingly reacquaint us with reality that in the midst of a hurricane, we can do nothing but hide. In the midst of a tsunami, we can do nothing but run. In the middle of a tornado, we stand no chance. Psalm 19 will say that the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, here in particular, these disasters are screaming, you are not God. But God alone is the Lord. But there's a sudden break after the fourth trumpet, where in verse 13 of chapter 8, we see an eagle and it cries out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We'll see in trumpets Five, six, and seven, these woes come to pass. These woes are pronouncements of judgment. That the Lord is standing against them and saying, You are rebels, and you will not stand against a mighty God. So he continues further and shifts gears with the fifth trumpet, where we see these locusts pour forth from this bottomless pit. It's a, a, an illusion or a, an echo pointing back to the book of Joel, where uh, it's described that there will be this locust plague as a, a bringing forth of what the scriptures will call the day of the Lord, or judgment day itself. And it, of course, here in this case is uh, uh, demonic influence pouring out and, and bringing uh, great torment to the unsealed saints. Which brings up an aspect and a point that see with each of these judgments how precise the Lord is. That he, throughout all of this, preserves his saints. Those who we saw were sealed before, but he righteously pours out his wrath upon the rebels. He then goes further even to say, uh, in chapter, or with the, the sixth trumpet, that there are angels who go out throughout the land and are uh, angels of death. And they bring all of these various plagues against mankind. Plagues, once again, much like the plagues in Exodus. But what we see, as we anticipate, surely 
No one who goes through the sovereign hand of God would stand before him and say, I will not worship you. When the Lord has declared his might in all of the created realm and even in uh, the supernatural realm, no one would surely say, I refuse to bow my knee before you. And yet, just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they don't. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Isn't it interesting how we are so prone as the fallen sons and daughters of Adam to look to the things that we make with our own hands and say, deliver me. This thing that I hold, this thing that I have in fact made in my image, I call it to redeem me. Yet it's this very thing that destroys us the most. But as we see with these, these trumpets, trumpets one through six, what are they here to do? They're here to fulfill these prayers of the saints, that the saints who have been martyred would be vindicated, that the Lord himself would hallow his name. That he wouldn't stand by and that he would, he would bring forth this retribution, but that also in bringing forth judgment, the world might repent of its wickedness and evilness and see the glory of their God and their creator. But the question that we began with is a question we must ask here. Do we actually trust God? Do we trust God to vindicate his saints? Is he sufficient for this? Do we trust God that he would in fact hallow his own name, that vengeance would be his? I must confess to you that it is a terrible temptation of mine to say he won't. Therefore, I have to take up the activism of this world. I have to do things. I have to, to send out the right tweets. I have to do the right thing in, in this place or in that place. The world needs to know that God is vindicated because I said so. We don't trust God the way we should, do we? Especially the justice that the Lord alone brings. And watch what that does to our hearts. When we look around and say, the world needs me to vindicate God. The world needs me to vindicate the church. What ends up happening? It crushes us. And it causes us to not look at the world and say, you need to know this glorious Savior. But in fact, it says, I hate you. We were not intended to carry the unbearable weight 
of the justice that God alone is able to bring about. That is something we cannot do. But what instead we're called to do is to trust that God alone is sufficient for these things. But he does give us further instruction of what we are to do, which is what we see in the very next setting. He shifts gears, and as we saw before, there's, you'll see a pattern here of uh, the various judgments which come in cycles of seven, and that, uh, just as we saw before, between the sixth and the seventh judgment, uh, there's a break. There's an interlude. There's, there's so much overwhelming uh, things going on that we almost need to pause and to reacquaint ourselves with what is going on. And we've seen these judgments, and we see the hardness of mankind's heart, and it's likely that we're distraught at this point, crying out, Oh, Lord, what do we do now? Well, the Lord tells us. In chapter 10, he goes, and there's a mighty angel who comes down from heaven. He has a rainbow above his head, the covenantal sign from Noah, that the Lord would not destroy the earth in its entirety with water once more. And he has in his hand this little scroll, and, and he's, he's expanding both on the sea and the water, and his right hand is in the air, demonstrating that the Lord is the sovereign ruler and creator of all things, and he swears by him who lives forever, who created heaven and earth, and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants. The angel is declaring for us that God will keep his promises that the mysteries of God would, would come to pass, that his sovereign and providential plan cannot be stopped. Do we believe that? He tells John just shortly after that, gives him the little scroll, take and eat it, it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. This is uh, something that we've already seen in the book of Ezekiel, that the word of the Lord is sweet to the taste of the saint, but it will prove to be corrosively bitter to those who stand in opposition against God. Yet, John is given these things. He takes and he eats it. It is sweet as honey in his mouth, yet it is bitter when he must proclaim it. Yet he is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What he's being told here is, John, you are a weak vessel, but here's what you must do. Though you are weak, the word of God alone is sufficient. Do we believe that? This is always, always the battle that the church must fight. Is the scripture enough? Is the word of God enough for his church? Is it enough to bring sinners to repentance? Is it enough to convert us and bring us unto Christ himself? 
We saw it at the turn of the 20th century with the, the increase of theological liberalism. J. Gresham Machen wrote his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, it was an attack on the Bible to say this thing is not inerrant, it's not infallible, it's not inspired. We see even a, a repackaging and a rebranding of this very same thing today, what is called the progressive church movement. That the scriptures are not enough. What do we need? We need other things. We need cultural engagement. We need relevancy. But the scriptures, the scriptures are not enough for the building up of Christ's church, says this movement. Do we in fact believe that it is? This should be a mark of who we are, that we are transformed by it. That we, we don't need, as a church, a great marketing strategy or you know, piercing cultural engagement. If we really believe this, if we really believe what is being spoken of here, what we say we need the most is we need the transformative, powerful word of God. And, in fact, if we're a bit unsure of how this word is so powerful, we turn to the very next section. We see this progression of, of how the word of God is brought to his people, particularly in this book. Uh, the, the father speaks to the son. The son speaks to the angel here in the start of chapter 10. Then he gives it to John, and then John gives it to us in chapter 11. We see that first... He is told, he is given a measuring rod like a staff, and he says, go and measure out this temple. The, the temple is regularly used, especially throughout uh, the New Testament in Paul's letters, to refer to the church. And, and so as we saw before in the previous judgments, that, that the sealing of the saints, the bringing in and the protection of God upon his people is there. Here he's saying the same thing, except with a different illustration. Go and measure these things, the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there, the church. But then he goes further to talk about, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. We've seen back in chapter 1 of Revelation uh, that these witnesses uh, are also called the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which are called in chapter 1, the church. So he's painting two pictures here of what the church is, the temple of God itself and the witnesses of God to go and proclaim the word of God that John is giving to us here now. But there's a bit of discouragement that comes as we continue on reading. We see that the olive trees and the lampstands which stand before the Lord, they are to prophesy for 1,260 days, and fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. The word of God that they're preaching is a consuming fire. And this is how he, they are doomed to kill who are rising against them. They have the power to shut the sky 
that no rain may fall while they're prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. They're, they're compared to Elijah and Moses, the quintessential prophets who have the word of the Lord to preach before the world themselves. But this is where things get discouraging. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, conquer them, kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead body and refuse to let them uh, be placed in a tomb, and they will celebrate. There's an added plague here that the preaching of the churches is a plague upon the nations, and they can't stand it. Now, when we stop and we look here, that the beast rises, kills them, and they lie dormant. Doesn't that speak so often to how many of us feel? We look at the church around us and we say, Lord, why is it failing? Why isn't it that your gospel is going forth in this place? Why is it that this world stands in opposition? Why is it that the church seems to be shriveling up, swiftly to be blown away in the wind? Lord, have you forsaken us? In fact, what we see is no. That some way, somehow, it is by the providence of God that his church would bring forth the word of God and they would bring it forth by suffering. That a world would see the persecuted saints and think that they have overcome this group, that they have conquered, that they have done away with it. And yet time and time again, the Lord has proven throughout the church's history, though we are persecuted, we are not destroyed. Do we believe that? I can't tell you how many times I have stayed awake at night thinking, what happens? What happens when the church today ages and dies? What happens in 30 years? Who will the church be? We look at the legislation of today and we say, yes, I trust God but a Bergefeld. I, I trust God, but it seems like we will not be able to worship God the way that we need to. It, I trust God, but what do I do with increasing secularization of the world around us? I trust God, but why is his gospel not going out? Why is it falling on deaf ears? Why does it seem that the church is failing. The Lord knows that his people are often downcast 
are often fickle and are deeply, deeply needy. And so he doesn't leave us there. Thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us in the grave, but he brings us forth, verse 12 in chapter 11. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come. It oftentimes, for some reason, by the providence of God, seems like the church is losing. But the Lord speaks to us here and gives us this passage to say, the world, death, sin, the grave do not have the final say. But I, the sovereign Lord, the almighty one, the creator of heaven and earth, have the final say. And I will vindicate my name. And I will bring forth my saints. And I will preserve my church and hold you fast until the last day. But then he calls us in this seventh trumpet, this final thing, to rest. To see the final consummation where he says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The prayers of the saints have been answered. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And he will reign forever and ever and us with him. It even goes further to say, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. But then he says this, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. As the book of Habakkuk will close, the Lord is in his heavenly temple. Let all the world be silent before him. Even now, church, though we stand in a world that seems often like it is winning, like it will destroy us, the Lord has promised that his truth will triumph through us. So may we continue on singing with the saints, with goods kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever and with that may we pray thy kingdom come O lord let us pray
our almighty, sovereign Lord, you alone are able to hold us fast and to preserve your church and to vindicate your name and to give us a sufficient word for the building up of the saints and the conversion of souls. And so, Lord, we pray now that though we are fickle, that though we are prone to fall and falter, that you, O Lord, alone are trustworthy and faithful. May we fix our eyes upon you and on your promises and on your sovereign and providential hand. And may we be faithful in proclaiming your word for all to hear that Christ our King is the King and Redeemer of all. May we abide in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.